ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. It's been a tough year. The Ukraine conflict, inflation, hunger, the energy crisis. How can we begin to solve these huge problems? That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura ross Tellum, and for today's show, we want to share the first episode of the new season of Global Reboot, a foreign policy podcast in partnership with the Doha Forum. On Global Reboot, FB Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agarwal sits down with world leaders and policy experts to help figure out solutions to today's toughest problems. Later, you'll hear the first episode of Reboot with Eurasia Group founder and president Ian Bremmer. But first, I had the chance to chat with Ravi, who is also my boss. Ravi, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you. I think Reboot is this show where you ask a lot of very smart questions to a lot of smart people. And I'm curious what you think makes Reboot different from other shows of smart people like yourself asking other smart people smart questions. Well, um, you know, we're trying very hard to not be too wonky for starters. So really, it's meant to be a conversation between two people, but really pushing towards fixes. You know, we're at the point now where all of our problems are just so familiar. We talk about them all the time. You know, the food crisis or climate change or how to finance climate change or racism, big ticket issues. But again, we sort of approach each episode with the premise that we're not going to spend too much time revisiting why these problems suck. Our audience of listeners are quite familiar with these issues. So we push for solutions. How do we fix this tangibly? What do we need to do next? How? How is a question we ask a lot. So what have been some of the best answers to your how questions this season? Wow, uh, that's a really tough one. Um, So the thing about the answers is, if they were that easy to pull off, a lot of people would have solved these big ticket issues that we're playing with. So financing climate change or, well, let's take financing climate change, for example. In an upcoming episode, Adam Tooze, the economic historian who's done a lot of research on how to finance climate change mitigation. And I sort of begin by asking him, is the question political will Or is the question that there simply isn't enough money? And he says, well, it's kind of a bit of both, but it begins with political will. And on the question then of how do you change political will, that's a much 
harder one to answer. I think the best answer I probably got so far um, was from Ertherin Cousin, who is the former executive director of the World Food Program. And she just has this incredibly detailed proposal for how to feed the world. And, and her point is that it's not even that demand is too high. She says the problem is supply. Like, don't point the finger at there being too many people. And what she points the finger at quite specifically, she says 40% of all food is wasted. Hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I imagine this season, I know Reboot started last year, and this was in kind of a hopeful moment, right? It was as vaccines were becoming available, new political leadership, it looked like the pandemic was ending on July 4th, and obviously that's not the state of the world now. So I'm curious, yeah, what it was like for you doing these interviews this season and... I know some of them were kind of depressing. Like, how do you make sense of solutions in this moment? Well, you're right. A lot of these topics can be depressing, uh, whether we're talking about human rights or freedom of the press, issues that on the face of it seem like they should be improving year after year after year. But in many cases, we are regressing. That's hard. But a couple of things give me hope. One is that if you look at the longer span of history, there has been a lot of human progress, and it's important not to forget that. And then second, if you look at the number of people who are coming up with great ideas and inspiring ways of fixing some of the world's most entrenched problems, and that's the thing that I think leaves me hopeful at the end because no matter how much humanity messes things up, it also opens a window to fixing the mess that it creates. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this, Ravi. You know, listening to Reboot, I have to say, I mean, your questions are just really good. You know, you're asking people things I'm like, oh, that was a good question. Well, thank you. If you had any advice for beginning journalists about how to ask good questions, what would you tell them? Oh, gosh. Um, I think you know, the best advice I ever got was to listen. I think a lot of times people go into interviews with preconceived sort of questions and they clearly sort of have a list and they're getting through their list. And, and I found those interviews to be the least productive. Sometimes the most natural questions are the best ones. The ones that go, oh, really? Or how? No way. Uh, <laughs> you know, an exclamation or a question can be incredibly useful, I think, sometimes because it allows a listener or a viewer to sort of ride along with you. And then I guess where it changes is, you know, us journalists have some level of expertise. That's where, you know, a more detailed question or that questions uh, truth to power, for example, um, that kind of stuff, I think, ends up becoming very useful because not everyone can do that. And then us journalists are empowered to do so. We're in a position to do so. We're paid to do so. We study to do so. So that's the other thing I think that any journalist should look out for. That was Ravi Agrawal. And now, here's Global Reboot. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'm the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine, Welcome to Global Reboot.
When we began this show in 2021, people around the world, but mostly in the West, were just beginning to get vaccines for COVID-19. The pandemic had wrought so many big, dramatic changes around the world and inflicted so much pain that we thought it was an apt moment to examine fixes. We wanted to explore grand solutions, global reboots, to the world's biggest problems. And so we did. We looked at how to prevent the next pandemic. We examined how to combat racism once and for all. We asked how we could make the world less unequal. And we tried to think through how to manage the complex US-China relationship. We did all of those things with guests who have spent lifetimes thinking about these very issues. Dr. Bernice King, the economists Mariana Matsukato and Raghuram Rajan, US climate envoy John Kerry, and many more. If it were at all possible, 2022 has brought us even more problems. We now have an ongoing interstate war. We have the threat of nuclear war. There's a global food shortage. There's an energy crisis. And amid all this, global cooperation on dealing with climate change has taken a backseat. It is with that backdrop that we begin another season of Global Reboot in partnership with the Doha Forum. The idea here isn't just to discuss problems, but to explore solutions. And over the course of this season, you will hear from experts on human rights, climate financing, democracy, food, and much else, all big problems that we need to fix. We begin, though, with a discussion that looks at many of these problems combined. Ian Bremmer has a new book out called The Power of Crisis. Bremmer is the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy. In his book, he describes the biggest problems confronting humanity today and makes the case that it is only with big existential crises that the world comes together to cooperate on fixes. One emerges from Bremer's book actually a little bit hopeful. I thought it would be a good place to start. Ian, welcome to the show. Ravi, good to be with you, my friend. You've just written a book that is actually about three major threats. So another global health emergency, climate change, and the rise of disruptive technologies such as AI. And then, since your book is called The Power of Crisis, you go on to explain how to navigate these challenges. So I want to take on each of these challenges individually in a bit, but let me just start with this. How did you pick these three crises and why? Well, first of all, to, be, to make it a little easier, it's really about the fact that over the last 20 years, our global order has been unwinding. We've sort of slipped into this G0 world a cyclical geopolitical recession where our institutions are no longer fit for purpose and aren't aligned with the balance of power uh, that exists today. And that creates a whole bunch of crises. In the seeds of these crises are the ability to create institutions that will become a new global order that will be fit for purpose again. But I mean, it seems pretty obvious that if you're gonna write about how crisis will drive the next global order, you have to write about the crises that are big enough that actually kick us in the ass. And that's, that's how I pick these three. Now, it's interesting because you have those big three, but then you also have two sort of enmeshed concerns within them, and, and you call them collision courses in the book. So the fact that America is as polarized as it is, and then the fact that the world's two biggest economies, the US and China, 
are increasingly at odds with each other. Are these are both trends that you see as the trends of uh, you know our lifetimes, essentially. Right? Yeah, and and furthermore, they're not fixable in the near term. So I had to be honest and say, look, we're going to look at these crises and we're going to look at how these crises are going to help us change the global order. But we have to recognize that the United States is the most powerful country in the world. It's also the most politically dysfunctional and divided of the G7, of the advanced industrial democracies. And that's not going to get fixed in the next 10 years. And then the United States and the China relationship, which is the most important geopolitical relationship in the world, and it's completely devoid of trust. And I want to say that any solutions that I'm going to give you have to be solutions that I actually see happening over mm. the course of the next five to 10 years. So they have to be solutions that are going to occur even though the U.S. is still politically dysfunctional and even though the United States and China do not create a G2. Because you're realistic and you're taking on things you think are, are in the realm of, of achieving. Let's move us towards solutions. And I, I just want to go one by one on sort of the main things, sure. the big ticket items that you take on, uh, the reboot sort of part of this conversation, yep. Yep. pandemic preparedness. So what have we learned from COVID-19 so far? And why do you think we can get better at preventing the next one? Mixed messages that have come out of COVID. I wish the lessons were better holistically. They're not, but there are mm. positive messages. Positive message number one, the initial months, the United States really got our act together. We did on vaccines faster than anyone else out there. And it's not just because we had these great entrepreneurs, but also because the US government leaned into it with Operation Warp Speed. Secondly, in an enormously divided country, Pelosi and Mnuchin, trillions of dollars of response. And this was not a bailout for the rich. This was a bailout for the country. And it allowed a V-shaped recovery that nobody expected. And furthermore, Dr. Fauci in the first months, people forget this now because he's become such, you know, sort of a political litmus test, but he was lionized. I mean, he was he became a hero. That's why there were all of these figurines for Fauci. And because this 80 year old dude with his little white jacket was the one that we all wanted to listen to, to figure out, like, how to avoid dying. And so it did feel like we were getting our act together. And then the other major lesson out there is that the Europeans really did use this longer term to make Europe stronger. They took on both the acquisition and distribution of vaccines as a new authority for the EU and made sure that all Europeans had access to it, not just the rich ones. And they also created an internal Marshall Plan for development from the wealthy countries to the poor countries, the opposite of what they did when Greece went under, right. that, that ultimately created more support for a strong and united European Union. Unlike the United States, which emerges from the pandemic now later, more divided and more dysfunctional, Europe comes out of the pandemic actually stronger and more resilient as the most powerful supranational governmental institution in the world today. Wow. And let's remember the first few months were rougher on uh, rich European countries. Yes. Um, Italy. I oh have my God. friends in Germany, for sure. example, who were saying we could buy up all the vaccines, but because we're part of the EU, we have to share them with everyone. But, you know, the, the, the flip side of this is the rest of the world. So one of the other narratives from COVID is that in many other parts of the world, mostly in the global south, vaccines were slower to reach people. But not only that, 
it's the last mile infrastructure that people struggled with. So even when there was vaccine capacity, when the supply issue was fixed, there were other problems. There was delivery, there was demand, and then there were other infrastructural issues with hospitals, with basic health care, with uh, primary care in many parts of the world. What lessons are we learning yeah. on, on that front? How does the power of crisis help us? Tough there? one. I think that unfortunately, as the Americans no longer viewed the crisis as urgent because it was, well, it's just old people and it's sick people and we can vaccinate them and the rest of us can live the way we want to. The urgency around stopping the pandemic in the rest of the world went way down. And you're absolutely right that in that environment, the fact that the Indians who were good enough to produce vaccines for the rest of the world, we were happy to accept that. But when they suddenly needed help and they were begging for one plane load of vaccines from the Americans, and we still were like trying to make sure our population got boosted. And we said, sorry, talk to the hand. Like That wasn't a great message to our friends in the quad. And no surprise that they've not been helping us with the Russians more recently, for example. But also more broadly, I mean, in Africa, you had vaccines that were literally expiring because no one spent the money to ensure that there was infrastructure on the ground to actually get jabs and arms. And by the way, another big problem is that the Chinese who have the infrastructure to get jabs and arms were so smug about the fact that they were able to lock down and track and trace and surveil when the pandemic was in its early versions and much less transmissible, suddenly the pandemic changes and now you have you know, actual variants that are closer to measles mm -hmm. in their transmissibility and the Chinese suddenly aren't prepared because their over 80 population, far less than 50% of them were vaccinated. And that's just unconscionable. So, I mean, again, lessons can be learned from all of that, but this was a big opportunity. Unfortunately, there were a lot of wasted opportunities. And on balance, the pandemic was not one that I would say was a positive experience for the next global order. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Let's jump to the other crisis of this century, um, provided we get through it, uh, climate change. And, uh, you know, I, I like how you framed it in the beginning. It's net zero meets G zero as sort of part of the problem. So in other words, the race to reach net zero emissions is coming up against a G zero world, uh, you know, the phrase you coined to describe a sort of multi or non-polar world. Lay out that problem a little bit, but this is an issue that you're you're actually more optimistic about. Yeah, I, and it's kind of funny. I view climate in many ways as a Goldilocks crisis, big enough to force us to make changes that are mm. really hard, but not so big that we feel like we can't actually respond, that we feel paralyzed by fear and the scale of the challenge. Climate change is that. I'm optimistic for two reasons. First of all, because we've now gotten to a point 
that there is only one side to be on. 195 mm. countries now every year have an intergovernmental panel on climate change, and they all agree that climate change is real, that it's anthropogenic. It's not cyclical from nature. We're doing it. because, And the transmission mechanism is carbon and methane in the atmosphere. We understand and, it. And we all remember COP meetings where there were climate deniers who were being rolled uh, yep. out as part of the uh, discussion. Yep. Absolutely. That's gone. That's gone. It's everyone. It's the emitters and it's the rich and it's the developing. We all agree that as of right now, it's 1.2 centigrade warming that we've hit. We all agree where it's hitting, where it's hitting less, who's being impacted the most and what the scenarios are going forward. That's astonishing. First of all, that gives you an enormous opportunity because I said that the U.S. and China aren't going to get together and have a kumbaya moment, but they don't need to. Because we now see that the Chinese are putting all of this money into nuclear and into wind and into solar and into infrastructure for electric vehicles around the world. And we're saying, wait a second, we can't let the Chinese become the energy superpower of the 21st century. We have to start investing in that so we can be the leaders. Well, that, that's great. I mean, I'd rather if we were working together, but I'll take virtuous competition over a vicious cycle to the bottom. And, and furthermore, it's not just about the US and China. It's about the EU that's way ahead of both the Americans and the Chinese. It's about banks and corporations responding to NGOs and individuals, consumers, clients who are saying, we are not going to invest with you or buy your goods unless you actually accept that we need a transformation, a transition. And so much money is now going into solar and wind and advanced nuclear and EVs that we're seeing at scale, these things are becoming cheaper than fossil fuels, especially in today's Russia invades Ukraine environment. And what that means is that at some point within a generation, a majority of the world's energy will no longer come from unsustainable stuff that we pull out of the planet. And that's incredible. It's a vastly better scenario than anyone had expected 10 years ago. And it means that we're not aiming for four or five or six degrees of warming before we hit net zero and start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. It means we're aiming for 1.5 to 2.5 degrees of warming. Now, the difference in those two numbers represents hundreds of trillions of dollars and hundreds of millions of lives. I mean, we need to keep the foot right. on the accelerator. Even the best case scenario still involves losses, as you Yes, say. of course, and that there's a lot to still play for. But the fact is that we are on track to actually effectively responding to this crisis as collective humanity. And that is an enormously big deal. You know, one thing occurs to me that so much of this is about the size and scale of the crisis, because... Coming back to where we began this conversation and, you know, back to G0, if you look at the war in Ukraine and you look at how it's united large parts of the West, less so in the rest, China, India, much of South Asia, countries in Africa and Latin America, that's more than half the world's population that isn't willing to back sanctions against Russia. I mean, does that mean that this crisis for most countries, the, the war in Ukraine is not a big enough crisis? Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, and it also means that when the scale of the entrenched lack of cooperation is greater, the size of the crisis you need to overcome it is greater. I mean, the fact is that the developing world has been losing faith in the United States and other advanced industrial allies for a long time. And the response to the pandemic 
deepened that and the response to climate change. You didn't ask me this, but if you had said, Ian, what's the thing that's going to get us to 1.5 as opposed to 2.5? And I'm not optimistic we're going to get to 1.5, by the way. I'm not. I mean, if you made me bet, I would say we're probably going to be closer to 2.2, 2.3, which sucks. But the thing that would make a difference would be treating Indians like human beings. Mm. For example, I mean, you know. As in basically saying that you need energy, you need air conditioning, you need all these things that other countries have, let's figure out how to do it in an equitable, sustainable way. Of course, because we, the wealthy countries, are the ones that have put all of the carbon into the planet. We are the ones that are responsible for being at 1.2 degrees. The Indians have quality of life that is vastly worse than ours and now are facing headwinds because of us. And if they are going to face 120 degrees, And they don't want to deal with rolling blackouts in their country. And the only available energy to them that's inexpensive is coal. Well, then we better be the ones that are going to pay for them to make that transition. And the same thing is true with deforestation in the Amazon. Do you you see that happening? Not fast enough. That's why I said, if you made me bet, I think that we're going to be closer to 2.5 than 1.5. And I think that there's an enormous gap between those two things. But I'm convinced that we won't be at three or four or five or six. And that's because we are actually taking this seriously. We're just not yet taking it seriously enough, fast enough for the rest of the world. We aren't yet willing to see that Indians are human beings. I mean, it really is that. Yeah. That is what it is. Ian, I would actually broaden it a little bit more. I mean, all of South Asia, frankly, which then becomes a part of the world's population. I'm just making the example because it is, you know, it's their net zero is 2070 and they have no plan to get there. And there's 1.5 billion of them. So it's the easy way to say it. It's non-white people. It's non-rich people. It's the people that aren't us. And we're not willing to treat them like human beings fundamentally. I mean, America first is a policy that says we don't really rate other people. Because, I mean, you're literally stripping the humanity of the vast majority of the planet. And that's a really hard thing to take when we're in the process of harming our planet. It's having this giant existential crisis that everyone can agree on, which was the first part of the struggle, But it's when you have something that everyone agrees on is the thing we need to focus on the most. That's when you unleash all these other forces that you're describing, cooperation, competition. Yeah. And and it's not only that you have only one side. It's also that as time passes, your priors are being confirmed every day, every week, every month citizens around the world are going, this is affecting me in my backyard. It's not just saving the whales and hugging trees. It's not just Bangladesh going underwater. It's California. It's Texas. It's Florida. These are life-changing events that everyone on the planet can see, making them want to respond with more urgency every day. So I think that those two realities, the fact that there's only one side among the people that matter to move to move the needle and the fact that your priors are becoming more confirmed is what's getting you a solution but you know one of the threads through these first two crises you're describing is sort of the power of science as well and the triumph of technology yes. and that leads me in part to the third 
uh, set of crises that you um, describe. And this one's a bit different where, you know, you have the rise of disruptive technologies where you frame this one more as initially uh, an opportunity where all these different new technologies, AI, the rise of smartphones, uh, Aadhaar in India, they are doing great things, but there are all of these risks. Um, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, we need to contain the disruptive side of these technologies. And this is so obvious and real to me in part because when I was a graduate student uh, starting my PhD in 1989, so the Soviet Union was still very much there, Cold War was still very much there. What was I studying? I was studying the containment of mm -hmm. nuclear weapons technology. Uh, I was concerned about mutually assured destruction. And even though the Soviets and the Americans hated each other, we recognized that we didn't want the proliferation of nuclear technology into the hands of lots of other countries or non-state actors, because that could mean the end of the planet. Mm. And that's why we even tried to contain nuclear technology between the Americans and the Soviets. I mean, the fact is that arms control was the one area that you had the greatest strategic engagement between these two countries. It was existential. So now we have the Americans and the Chinese leading the world in the creation of all of these new technologies that are fundamentally both value creating, but also very deeply threatening to the future of society, the future of humanity. And I'm talking about you know, things as near term and real as uh, offensive cyber weapons um, and lethal autonomous drones to algorithms and artificial intelligence that uh, create deep fakes and don't allow you to differentiate between who is and who is not a real human being, all the way to quantum computing. And it is very clear that we need to contain the application of these technologies to a small number of responsible actors, that we don't want terrorist organizations having access to lethal autonomous drones. And yet, there literally is no architecture between the Americans and the Chinese to try to prevent that from happening. Indeed, there's not even a basic agreement on what the problem is. Fortunately, unlike climate change, which is right now and real and in front of us, we still have a little bit of time before the nature of the threat becomes existential. But we also aren't yet at a place that we are addressing it. Right. And, and it's so necessary because you talked about nukes and deterrence and that I think you've studied it so much. So many scholars have written about it, but it kind of makes sense, like the, the theory of deterrence makes sense because there are static arsenals on both sides. And one of the, the problems with cyber is you could have amazing capabilities today, but you know if what you're actually doing is exploiting a vulnerability and the vulnerability is then closed, well, there goes that, that capability. I mean, you use a zero-day attack once, not twice. And so the risks you describe here uh, and when you add in AI is it's so much more dynamic, so much more messy, so much more unpredictable. Yes, and uh, all but like nuclear weapons, so much more offensive. And so as a consequence, if you do not contain the proliferation, uh, defending against it is a fool's errand, right? I mean, it's going to be incredibly hard. There will be a mutually assured destruction between players that actually care about ensuring that they still have the ability to exist. 
in a functional and global economy. But there are a lot of actors that don't care about that. And, you know, in the same way that we generally don't like it when emotionally disturbed 18-year-olds have access to AR-15s, when they do, some of them are going to use them in schools. Right. And that's a horrible thing, but not horrible enough that we change our legislation. So it is very clear that we have to treat this as a global existential challenge where the Americans and the Chinese may not trust each other, but like with climate, we must row in the same direction. And what's your sense of what it would take to build some rules of the road around here? I mean, is there anything you're hearing or seeing that are early steps in that process? Well, I mean, I'll tell you what I would start with. And it's sort of banal, but it's obvious once you say it, which is you need a intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence. So you start with the groups of people that are involved in public policy, some coders, some tech company individual strategy types, and some government officials, some technocrats, you put them together, a global group, to identify the problem. What are the technologies that we're talking about here? Which are the ones that really are priorities and most dangerous? Which are the ones that nah, may not be such a big deal? Where are there going to be adequate defenses if we only invest in them? And where is that not really possible? And then once you've done that, like you couldn't get the COP summit process going and effective until you had an understanding, a recognition that, oh my God, this climate change really is real. We've got to do something about it because it'll cost something. Then you can say, we're prepared to mm. invest real money. Then you'll put trillions into it, not before. And then you can create the metrics that actually allow you to say what's the equivalent of net zero mm. for the proliferation of disruptive AI. And that's where we have to go. This is one where I'm saying, no, I see a crisis, but there's a solution. And we are actually aligning already towards that solution. And we just need to move faster. Ian Bremer, thanks for joining. Thank you, Rob. My thanks to Rubby for sitting down to chat with me. That's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you want to suggest a great podcast, you can go ahead and email us at podcastsatforeignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Maria Jimena Aragon, Rosie Julin, and Rob Sachs. I'm Laura Rosbrautello. Till next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>